We are going to be continuing our exposition of the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 20. And normally we just continue to work our way through this book verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And we started this book, uh, I think November, two and a half years ago or so. So it's been a rich, rich study for me. I, every week the Lord meets me in His Word. So I hope he's ministering to you. I hope he's blessing you through the word. We're going to be studying the parable of the vine grower in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 18. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll read the text. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, and we pray that your word would have its rich, powerful impact. Lord, may truth come into our minds so that we are not deceived by all of the different philosophies of the world. May we see truth for what it is. Lord, help us to embrace what you have put before us here. We pray that we would escape from the negative examples of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The Lord, we would be prepared for the judgment to come. Lord, that we would rejoice in the invincibility of your sovereign purposes. So come and minister through the Word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Whenever I read verse 18, I get a little nostalgic because verse 18 was the text for my very first sermon. And I think the year was 1982. I was converted in 1979, and three years later, my pastor gave me an opportunity to preach. <laughs> and this was my text. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And I remember this desire arising in my heart to teach the Word of God back then. And uh, what is that, 34 years ago? And uh, still doing it. So praise the Lord. I hope I'm still doing it till the day I die. Just preaching the Word of God. Let me give you a little background of this text. This, this parable was given during the last week of Jesus' life. 
In Luke 19, we read about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We refer to that as Palm Sunday. Jesus comes in triumphantly amongst all the hosannas of the people. Blessed is the son of David, who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. And they were laying down palm branches. He rides into Jerusalem. He goes up to the temple. He looks around inside the temple, and he sees everything that's happening, but he doesn't do anything. He goes back to Bethany, where he stays the night. The next day, he comes right back to the temple, and he cleanses it. He throws out all the people who are selling oxen and sheep and doves and turns over the tables of the money changers. This infuriated the religious leaders, especially the chief priests, the Levites, because this was their area of domain. They're thinking, who is this guy? What's he, what's he doing in the temple? That's our business. We're the ones that tell people what they can and can't do in the temple. Not him. He's not a priest. What's he doing here? And so that's why they come to him in chapter 20. Verse 1, actually verse 2, and they demand him to tell them, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who's the one who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? I mean, where'd you get this authority? And so Jesus asks them a question. He says, I'll also ask you a question and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Jesus had so much wisdom, didn't he? In chapters 20, all the way through the chapter 20, these religious leaders are going to try to trap Jesus. And they're going to do it over and over and over. And every time, Jesus is going to give just that perfectly wise answer so that they can't trap him in a saying. But they're trying to do that here. And so Jesus simply says, okay, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they start reasoning to themselves, okay, if we say it was from heaven... Then he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe what he said? Because John the Baptist testified that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said that he wasn't even worthy to stoop down and take off his sandal like a slave would do. John the Baptist says, I can only baptize in water. He can baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's far greater than me. So if they say the baptism of John was from heaven, then, then Jesus is going to say, well, then why didn't you simply believe him? Because they would not be baptized by John, nor did they believe his testimony of Jesus. But if they say the baptism of John was from men, they're going to stone us. Because they all believe that John was a prophet of God. Whatever way they went, it was going to incriminate them. And so they said, well, we don't know. When all else fails, you say you don't know, right? And Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus wins round one. Then, starting in verse 9, Jesus goes on the offensive. He's going to tell these religious leaders that he knows exactly what they're up to. He knows that they're going to crucify him within a, a short three or four days' time. This was his teaching here in chapter 20 and 21 was probably on Tuesday or Wednesday of that final week of his life. He knows exactly that his end is coming very, very soon. And so he gives them this parable. Now, this is one of the few parables that's found in all of the synoptic Gospels. You might not be familiar with that word synoptic. It means those of the same kind. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar Gospels. John's altogether different. John has no parables at all. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain parables. There's only a handful of them that are found in all three of them. This is one, which tells us it's important. 
This is something that the Bible writers just kept on repeating because they knew it was important for us to understand this. And it describes the future. It describes Jesus' future, and it describes the future of the religious leaders. Jesus' future was that he was going to die very soon by the hands of these men. Their future was that God was going to destroy them. And so he just lays it out in this parable. And he introduces five figures or five characters in the parable. We have a man, a vineyard, vine growers, slaves, and a beloved son. Now let's just break that down in a minute, for a minute. Uh, the man, that's God the Father. The vineyard, it's Israel, God's old covenant people. Then we've got the vine growers. That would be the religious leaders over Israel. The Pharisees, the scribes, Sadducees. Then we've got the slaves. So these are the ones that that man sent to the vine growers to receive the fruit, to receive the produce. So these slaves would be the prophets of the Old Testament that God sent to the religious leaders to call them back to repentance, to bring forth fruit unto him. And then finally, we have a beloved son. No question of who that is, is it? That is God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we work our way through this parable, we're going to see four outstanding truths that are going to emerge from the text. Number one, number one, the depravity of man. Number two, the long-suffering of God. Number three, the certainty of divine judgment. Number four, the invincibility of God's purposes. Those are the four doctrines, the four truths that come forth from the lips of Jesus Christ in this parable. First of all, the depravity of man. Look at verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. Now, I want you to maybe keep your finger here, but go back to Isaiah chapter 5. Verse 1. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Isaiah writes, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Okay, so a man decides that he's going to plant a vineyard, and so he takes care to remove all the stones. He digs up the ground to make that ground fertile. He plants that choice vine, a very a choice vine right there in the ground. He builds a tower, and this tower is so that they can see any enemies approaching or marauders that would come in and just take all of the produce away. Uh, he hews out a wine vat so that it can produce wine, and he expects it to produce some fruit, some good grapes. Now, jump on down to verse 7. This gives us a little key to the interpretation of who this man is and who the vineyard is. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So the, 
What was the fruit that this man kept looking for and he couldn't find any good fruit? It was all bitter grapes. Well, the good fruit, according to verse 7, was justice and righteousness. God came to Israel looking for justice and righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, and he couldn't find any. He found sin and iniquity and wickedness amongst God's people. Now, what I find interesting is that in one of the parallel parables in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew includes all of this stuff from Isaiah chapter 5. Let's just take a look at that real quick. Matthew 21.33. Matthew says, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Matthew is taking all of the language and imagery from Isaiah chapter 5 and importing it into this parable. Luke doesn't do that, but Matthew does, which tells us that when Jesus gave this parable, he had this section of scripture in Isaiah chapter 5 in mind. He's looking back, thinking about that, bringing it into another context in his present day. So what we see here is that this man plants a vineyard and he gives this vineyard every possible advantage so that it would produce fruit. He does everything that that, vin, vin, that vine would need to produce luscious grapes, right? All the stones are moved out. He tills the soil, plants a tower, plants a wall around it. There's a wine vat there. Everything is necessary to produce fruit. And this points to all of the privileges that God gave Israel to produce the fruit of righteousness. You say, what privileges did he give Israel? Well, the Apostle Paul enumerates them all in Romans chapter 9. I guess we're, we're doing a lot of flipping around today, and I guess we're going to be doing that. You can put your marker in Luke 20, because we're going to be coming back again and again to Luke 20. But let, let me show you what Paul says were the advantages of Israel. Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law? and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, or the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. So what were their advantages? They were adopted as God's sons, the Old Testament sons of God. They experienced the very Shekinah glory of God, the manifest presence of God in the Old Covenant. God gave them the Old Covenant through Moses, the Ten Commandments. He gave them the very law of God. He gave them the temple service by which they could make sacrifices for sin. He gave them a priesthood to offer those sacrifices. He gave them promises, all kinds of promises, especially promises concerning the Christ, the Messiah who would one day come. They were the ones who had the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and they had the promise that through that lineage would come the Messiah, the Christ. So these are the advantages and the promises and the, the blessings that God gave to Israel. But yet, in spite of all those advantages, God came looking for righteousness and justice, and he couldn't find any. There's another passage I'd like to just quote for you to show you the advantages of Israel. It's Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 7, 6. 
God says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. <laughs> Just like God chose that choice vine and planted it, God chose Israel. And you say, well, I guess God probably chose Israel because they were the greatest nation on the earth in that day, right? No, look at verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Well, why did he do it then? Verse 8. Because the Lord loved you. Because the Lord kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, <clears throat> king of Egypt. So here we see the great privileges and advantages. They were chosen for no merit of their own, no strength of their own, but simply because God set his love upon them, gave him his favor and his grace. Now, in, in Jewish culture, it was very common for a wealthy man to plant a vineyard and then to go away. There, you had these absentee landlords, but they would hire sort of like sharecroppers, tenant farmers that would live on the land. They would work the land, and when the land brought forth its produce, they would give a percentage back to that landlord, and they kept the rest. It's like in the South, you had sharecroppers. They did basically the same thing. So that was common in first century Jew Jewish culture. Um, look at verse, back to Luke chapter 20, look at verse 10. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Up until verse 10, everything would sound very, very normal to Jesus' audience. But I think by the time he got to verse 10, they would be absolutely shocked at what they were hearing him say. Wait a minute. The vine growers beat the slave? They sent him away empty-handed? Now, what would you and I do if we were a wealthy landowner? We hired some people to work our land. We have a contract that we get a percentage, they get a percentage. The harvest has been brought in. We sent someone to go get our share that we legally own. But when we go send him, they beat him up. And they drive him back and they treat him shamefully. Now, now what are we going to do? If it was me, I'm going to get the authorities involved. <laughs> Call the police. Hey, they've broken their contract. These guys are criminals. These guys are wicked, vicious criminals. They need to be incarcerated. <laughs> you know, you need to prosecute them. Um, but instead, he sends another slave back. What happens to this guy? They do the same thing. They beat him up, sent him away shamefully, empty-handed. Then what happens? He sends a third one. Do they treat this guy nicely? No, they beat him up, sent him away empty-handed. Finally, he says, hey, enough of this. I'll send my son. Surely they're going to respect my son. The son shows up and they think, if we can just kill him, we'll get to have the vineyard. And they do. They kill the son. And what this is pointing to is the depravity of man. And that day, 
They probably thought that the landlord was dead. Otherwise, he'd come himself to get the produce of the land, but he kept sending these slaves. And in that culture, if a land was left alone, um, by if it was not claimed for three years, the people that were working the land could lay claim to it. And so here they're thinking, okay, the landlord's probably dead. That's why he's sending his son. He's not around anymore. If we just kill him and we work this land, it'll become ours. And so that's their thought. They're acting shamefully. They're acting wickedly. They're acting ungratefully because he had given them a job and great freedom to work the land. They're acting criminally. They're acting viciously and they're breaking the law. And Jesus is pointing to the religious leaders of his day, the very ones that are trying to trap him in a saying. And he says, this is you. This is you. God has been sending prophets to rebuke you and call you to repentance. One after another after another. And what have you done? You persecuted them. As we just mentioned a few minutes ago, tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two. Tradition says that Jeremiah was lowered down into a dungeon. A cistern. It was their version of a prison back then. A muddy hole. Um... Jesus talks about the fact they murdered Abel and Zechariah in Matthew 23 and Luke 11. So these are the, the righteous men of God that have gone with God's message to his people and rather than receiving the message and repenting, they have resisted the message and they persecuted the messenger. We also find uh, a description of these kinds of people in Hebrews 11. Verse 36 it says, there others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. I love this little parenthesis here. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Isn't that an awesome little phrase? Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. God sends his faithful messengers and they persecute them. They beat them. They mock them. Put them in dungeons. Saw them in two. We will not repent. We're going to hold on to our false gods, our idols. In fact, when Stephen was being stoned, he looked these guys in the eyes that were about to stone him and he says, which of the prophets did you not persecute? Here we find Jesus giving a parable. The man sends his slave. God sends his prophets. They beat them. They send them away empty-handed. He sends his son. They murder him. They crucify him. Can you think of a, a greater possible guilt that anyone could incur than the person who murders God in the flesh? I mean, the creator. He comes down to the, his creation that he has created. He comes down to them. He visits them on an errand of mercy, and they kill him. There can be no possibly, no, no, no great or guilt any greater than that sin. And we like to point our fingers at them, don't we, and think, well, gosh, those guys are horrible. How could they do that? But you know, the human race today is no different than the human race back then. Men are still depraved. Men are still corrupt. Think about the unparalleled advantages that people have today. I was just thinking about this. How many of you were born 
after 1990. Anybody? Got a few people? Can, can you guys remember the days before the internet? You can? So, so I, grew, I grew up, <laughs> I grew up and there was no internet. So, so if you wanted to go someplace and you didn't know where it was, you know what you had to do? You had to get out a map. And you had to find it on the map. And then you had to trace how to get from point A to point B. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, or you called the person up and you said, can you give me directions? And you wrote out the directions. Remember that? That's how we got from point A to point B. Now you look on your phone and you hit a button and woo, that's, there we go. <laughs> Simple as ABC, right? <laughs> that's true. That does happen sometimes. But, but think about the advantages that we have as a people. Think about someone in the 1800s trying to imagine what life is like in 2016. You mean you guys can have unlimited access to any Bible study help you want? Any commentary? Any Bible dictionary? Any worship video? Any MP3? I mean, you, you carry around this little piece of metal in your, your pocket and you can, you, can, you can have any resource you want whenever you want it? Can you, imagine, can, you, can you understand the advantages and privileges that the people of this world have living in this day? Not only that, but we probably have more free time than other cultures have had in other generations. We probably have more financial resources on the whole than people of earlier generations have had to do the work of God. And have we lived up to those privileges? Have we taken advantage do we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do we take advantage of the resources that we have to glorify Him? No. Look around at the people around you. What are they using the internet for? Well, try to get rich, selfish gain, a lot of porn, you know, the lust of the flesh, worldly desires. Uh, we are no different than the Jewish people of their day who had unparalleled advantages but did not live up to them, did not bring forth fruit, unto God. The vast majority of people have turned a deaf ear to God and to His Word. They're uninterested in spiritual things. And you know that's the truth, don't you? And those of you who go out preaching on the streets or go out knocking on doors and talking to people, 99 out of 100 show little or no interest in the things of God. No, I'm good. Thanks anyway. The door is closed. It's, you, you feel so happy when you find anybody who's willing to stop and take five minutes to listen to the gospel, right? And you, wow, that was awesome, you know? You come away stoked. It's just because there is just no interest amongst the people of our day in the gospel. People have no alarm for their soul. People are not concerned over whether they end up in heaven or hell. There's just no spiritual interest. This parable shows the condition of all people, not just the ancient Jewish people. In Romans 8, 7, well, I'm going to back up a little bit. Romans 8, 5 through 8. Let me read this for you. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, let me just explain that. When he says those who are according to the flesh, he's talking about the person that does not have the Holy Spirit. This is the unsaved, lost person unregenerate. He sets his mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, that's the person who does have the Holy Spirit, he sets his mind on the things of the Spirit. 
For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Now, this is the part I want you to think about. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, think about the biblical description of the character of the natural man, the person without the Holy Spirit. He's hostile to God. He doesn't submit himself to God or God's law. In fact, he can't do it. He's not able to. He cannot do it. It's impossible for him to submit himself to God or his law. And he cannot please God, according to Scripture. He cannot. It's not that he, he tries real hard. He, he, it says he can't. It's not just that it's difficult. It's impossible for this person to please God by his life. That's the biblical description of the natural man. J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful devotional commentary on the, the Gospels, he calls them a, um, a harmony of... Oh, I forget what he calls them. Anyway, <laughs> it's his commentary on Luke. He makes this statement, Unconverted human nature, if it had the power, would cast its maker down from his throne. That's what they did when the maker came to visit his creation. Not only did they cast him down for his throne, they nailed him to a cross. They got rid of him as fast as they could. So, Americans, rather than boast about how good people we are, we ought to be humbled by a passage like this. We ought to be able to see ourselves in this passage. Uh, we ought to mourn our neglect of God, our disinterest in the things of God, our making idols rather than loving God with all of our hearts. We should realize that even we have the seeds of sin in us so that it would be possible for us to murder the very Son of God. That depravity is not totally yanked out when you become a Christian. You still have this flesh which is hostile to God. And it should humble us. Paul says, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Nothing good. Anything good that you've got in you is not you. <laughs> it's Jesus and His work and His grace. So, this teaches us the depravity of man. But it also teaches us, secondly, the long-suffering of God. This man in the parable is really a different kind of a man. Because as I said before, after I sent my first guy and they beat him up, I'm prosecuting. We're going to courts. <laughs> this guy's not going to get away with that. But instead of doing that, he sends another guy. And he sends another guy. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How, how could you just keep sending guys and they just keep beating up and you just keep sending more of them? And then you send your son? Jesus is trying to emphasize to his listeners the character of God. How God is long-suffering. How he's slow to anger. How he is patient and forbearing. Have you ever thought much about that aspect of the character of God? The long-suffering nature of God? This is what I want us to meditate on for a, a bit this morning. This man was showing unreasonable patience. Humanly speaking. It was unreasonable. It was illogical. And it was superhuman. Because God's patience is not like our patience. We, we are so impatient, aren't we? 
We blow our fuse so quick. We're quick to anger. God is slow, slow to anger. Let's look at some passages this morning that show the long-suffering nature of God. Exodus 34 is our first one. Verse 6 and 7. Yeah, Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. It says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him. This is Moses. He's passing by in front of. And he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. See, what he's doing is showing his glory to Moses. And the way God shows his glory is by displaying his attributes. And so he's going to put his attributes on display to Moses. This is my glory. All right, here it comes. Compassionate. Gracious. Slow to anger abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The one thing I want you to focus on there is this aspect. He's slow to anger. Very, very slow to anger. Has a long, long fuse. Or, what about... 2 Peter 3.9, which is a verse that many just love this, this passage. They love this verse because it talks about the free offer of the gospel. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Or the old King James says, is long-suffering toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is long-suffering. He's patient. Or, let's take a look at uh, Paul's own life in 1 Timothy 1, verse 16. 1 Timothy 1, 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. So, Paul says, in my, in my life, in my conversion... Jesus Christ was demonstrating His perfect patience. In other words, Jesus should have destroyed me a long time ago. I was persecuting Christians. I was persecuting the apple of His eye. I was putting them in prison and in chains and even killing some. He should have wiped me out, but He was demonstrating His perfect patience in me. Let's go over to Romans 9 and look at another passage. Romans 9.22 and here's one of those verses that, one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to just accept at face value. Second Peter 3.9 is the easiest verse to accept at face value. Romans 9.22 is one of the hardest. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Whoa. He endured with much long-suffering, tolerance and forbearance and patience. He just kept putting up with, putting up with. He's being slow to anger, not retaliating, not bringing vengeance, waiting, 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 waiting. Or how about if we go back in Romans to chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, long-suffering? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? 
I wonder, if, do we think lightly of God's kindness and tolerance and patience? Do we think much about that? Do we value his tolerance towards us, his patience towards us? Probably most of us don't give it much of a thought. Paul says it ought to be spurring us on to repentance, to think of his goodness to us. And because our God is so slow to anger and so forbearing and so patient, he calls us to be the same. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. The word is long-suffering, showing tolerance for one another in love. We are to be like our God. Our God is patient. He's long-suffering. We are to imitate Him. We are to manifest His character to other people. You know, I am so glad that we have a long-suffering God. For 19 years, God was completely long-suffering to me. I was a fairly moral person by the world standards, but I showed little or no interest, real interest in God. I, I wasn't striving to love Him with all my heart, soul, mind. I was doing my own thing. I was pretty much indifferent to God. You know, I was just growing up as a kid, doing my own thing. God would have been completely just to cut me off and cast me into hell during any of those 19 years. Because I wasn't returning any thanks, any favors, any praise, any worship. I was just a dead weight in God's kingdom. And even after my conversion, there have been many times when God was not in all my thoughts, when other things have crowded into my life, when I put other things first, and I've got caught up in this or caught up in that. God is long-suffering. We, we need to worship Him for that. We need to praise Him that He's a long-suffering, patient God. Number three, the certainty of divine judgment. That's the next thing that comes up in Luke chapter 20. Look at verses 15 and 16. So they threw Him out of the vineyard and killed Him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, if you're reading Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells you that the crowd answers back. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and put in tenant farmers that will bring forth the fruit that's deserving of it. That's how Matthew answers it. Luke answers it this way. He will come and destroy these vine growers and give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. He will destroy them. He's going to take away the vineyard from them. He's going to give the vineyard to other people. And I think the reason they said, may it never be, is because the lights went on and these religious leaders knew they were talking about them. It says, when they heard it, the word is to hear with perception, to, to hear with understanding. When they understood that Jesus was talking about them, they said, no, 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 may it never be. May this never happen to us. There's an old saying, the mills of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. This owner, though he was slow to anger, and kept sending gracious offers. There would finally come a day when he's going to stop sending slaves and stop sending sons 
and he's going to act in vengeance and come to destroy those people. God's wrath comes slowly, but it will come. God's wrath is absolutely certain. Absolutely certain. This parable not only teaches that God is long-suffering, but it also teaches that God is just. We suffer in America from a very superficial understanding of the character of God. We don't really understand God very well. We kind of gloss over God. Well, he's the, the, you know, the big man upstairs. He's my best buddy. You know, I just snuggle up to him. You know, all these weird, crazy ideas that we have. A, God is God. God is the creator, the omnipotent judge of all the earth. And I'm convinced that in America we really don't believe in what Jesus is teaching here. We don't believe that God will bring justice. We don't believe that God will punish sin. I mean, go out and just talk to people. They'll say, hell, I don't believe in hell. Hell is what we're experiencing right now. Nine times out of ten, if you bring up hell, that's what they'll tell you. Hell is what we're experiencing right now. A few weeks ago, we knocked on someone's door and talked to this young woman, and we were talking about heaven and hell. And she says, oh... I don't really think it matters too much where you go after you die. And the three of us, Myung was there, Debbie was there, and I was there, our jaws just dropped. We go, what? <laughs> you don't think it matters much where you go after you die? My friend, it matters. It matters. See, she, she really didn't believe in the biblical doctrine of God's justice. She didn't believe God will bring all sin to account. She didn't believe that God will punish sin. And people are indifferent today to God's justice. We have moved away from a biblical culture. Early on in the history of this nation, the scriptures pervaded the thinking of the people. People believed in providence. They believed that God would punish sin, even if they weren't Christians. They believed that God would punish sin. Today, we have been slowly, gradually moving, and we've become almost totally secularized to the point that it's unusual to find a someone who believes the Bible is the Word of God. We're on a downhill slope, moving away from truth, moving into a morass of confusion. Now, when Jesus said that this man was going to come and destroy these vine growers, what was he referring to? It might be different than you would at first glance think. We at first think of the final judgment, don't we? I don't think that's what Jesus was referring to here. Because he says he's going to destroy them, and then he's going to give this vineyard to others. If this is the final judgment, it's too late for him to give the vineyard to others. Because everything's over with. Does anything come to your mind? 80-70. That's what's going on. Within one generation of Jesus speaking this, God, in his providence, is going to allow the Roman... General Titus Vespasius to lead his army against the Jewish people to lay siege against the people of Israel for three and a half years. And finally, at the end of that time, they're going to march into the city of Jerusalem, slaughter about a million Jews, burn the temple down, knock every stone down from one another and just lay the whole city in rubble. And from that day on, there's going to be no priesthood amongst the Jewish people, no temple. There's no genealogical records any longer. So there's no Jew, Jewish person today who can even trace his 
ancestry back and know which tribe he came from. It was destroyed. God laid waste to the Jewish system of worship. It's over. The old covenant's gone. It's gone. So God sent his generals, his army, into Jerusalem to destroy the religious leaders and even the people of Israel. And then he is going to give that vineyard to others. Now, who are the others that he gives the vineyard to? Okay, well, that's true. He does give to the Gentiles. Remember, he's taking away from the religious leaders of Israel. He's going to give it to his own followers who will have leadership amongst the church of Christ. So this is talking about pastors, elders, evangelists, prophets, apostles, the people that he raises up to faithfully lead that flock rather than to fleece the flock for their own gain. If we were to go back just one chapter to Luke chapter 19. This is what Jesus was talking about in verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Instead of receiving the Son of God and following Him, they murdered Him. You didn't recognize the time of your visitation, so you will be leveled to the ground. Your children will be wiped out and killed. The nation's going to come to a screeching halt. And this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 23, at the very end of that chapter. Where he is bringing woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. Look at verse 37, Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. I believe he's addressing here the religious leaders. For the whole chapter, he's been addressing the religious leaders of Israel. When he says Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's talking about the leaders of Jerusalem, the chief priests and scribes and elders and Pharisees. I wanted to gather your children together, the people of Israel. You wouldn't let them come. You're trying to keep them away from me. You're trying to make them into sons of hell. You brood of vipers, he's saying. You were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What's he talking about? The temple is going to be left to you desolate. Desolation. The abomination of desolation, that's not something that's going to happen in the future. That's something that happened in 70 AD. Your house is left to you desolate. The temple is going to be destroyed. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's what Jesus, I believe, is talking about in Luke chapter 20 when he says that the man's going to come, he's going to destroy those vine growers and give it to others who will produce the fruit thereof. Now, we find the same principle operative today. God gave a people great privilege and advantage and they would not repent. The prophets came rebuked them, called them to repentance. They refused to repent. God's Son came. He preached the kingdom. 
He invited people and called people into the kingdom. The religious leaders wouldn't come. And the same principle is true today. Jesus Christ is giving his message of the gospel through his people to the world today. And if people will not heed the voice of Jesus Christ and come under his authority, they'll be destroyed. They'll be destroyed in the end. That's the message that the Apostle Peter was preaching in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3, he raises up a lame man at the gate beautiful. And when this man is healed, it gives him an opportunity to preach. Listen to what he says in verse 22, Acts 3.22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. Who is this prophet that God would raise up like Moses? Anybody know who that is? No, it's not John. It's Jesus Christ. He's the prophet like unto Moses. Look at verse 23. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. See the emphasis on heeding the prophet? Heeding means to hear and act on what he says. Likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. This is just an aside, but for those of you who come from a dispensational background, when I, when I came from that background, they told me that the, the church was a parenthesis. It wasn't really found in the Old Testament. Verse 24 says that all the prophets announced the days of the church, that the church was the apex of God's dealings, not a parenthesis. It was what God had been moving toward since the beginning. Notice verse 25. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Look at this, verse 26. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. God's servant is Jesus. God sent him to bless them by turning them from their wicked ways. Now, you try to help turn somebody from their wicked ways, and they don't think God's blessing them. <laughs> they look at that as offensive. They look at that as something that they don't want to hear. Just go away. I'll live my own life. You live your life. But the, the message of the gospel is, grace is offered. Christ has come. Salvation is here. But if you continue in impenitence, you will be utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed. This isn't the only place. I mean, the certainty of divine judgment is something that you find all over the Bible. This isn't something that may or may not happen. We think, well, maybe it won't happen because God, I mean, He hasn't brought it past so far. Look at all the thousands of years of human history. I mean, I don't see any God bringing any judgment on people. Maybe it won't happen. Wishful thinking. <laughs> John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But what? But the wrath of God abides on him. Rests on top of him. It's not going to go away. If he doesn't obey the Son, it won't go away. 
or Acts 10.42, when Peter, it would, do, it would be good for us to go back and look at how the apostles preached and compare it to what the sermons you hear today and how they were different. Look at how Peter preaches in verse 42. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. Or how about if we were to go to P or Paul's preaching in Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. God is now commanding all men everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. It's not that He might. He will. Do you believe the Word of God? Do you believe God's judgment is going to come upon this sinful, wicked world? It's coming, my friends. It's coming. It may not come in our lifetimes. I don't know. But it's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, it's going to happen when all men die and stand before God. Certainty of divine judgment. How about Romans 2.5? We'll look at one more. Romans 2.5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. A lot of people, I think, their hope is built on bubbles and dreams. What they hope will happen, what they think, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, so God is obligated to take me to heaven. It's a bubble. It's, it's, it's a vain dream. Unless you are converted and become like little children, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. There must be conversion or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, my friends. Last week, I, th I think I talked about the foolish builder. Remember the foolish builder? Everybody's building a house. Some are building it on a rock. Some are building it on sand. Everybody's building a house. And that house is going to face a storm. Everyone's house is going to face a storm. That's judgment day. Who's the foolish builder who built his house on sand who has it demolished when the storms come? What does Jesus say about him? He's the one that hears my word and does not act on it. He doesn't give heed to the prophet. He hears the gospel and doesn't do anything with it. He's indifferent to it. He slights it. He neglects it. He spurns it. He does his own thing. And he dies in his sin. And the storm comes against his life and he's utterly wasted and destroyed. My friends, judgment is certain. Absolutely certain. And so I would urge you, if you are not sure of your salvation, to flee to Christ. He's the ark. If you get into that ark, it doesn't matter how great the storms of God's wrath are that come upon that ark. You're safe. Remember, Noah and his family were safe in the ark. Everyone else was utterly destroyed. Flee to Christ like the city of refuge. Get inside the city gates and sh shut them behind you. It doesn't matter that avenger of death comes after you. You're safe in Christ. You're safe in the city of refuge. Flee to Christ like the Passover lamb so that when God's wrath comes, it'll pass over you because it was spent on His Son, Jesus Christ. You are safe if you flee to Christ. You are vulnerable to destruction if you go anywhere else. 
If you try to appear before God in your own righteousness, you're damned. If you try to profess your goodness to God, you're damned. Because you're not. Christ is the only righteous one, and His righteousness is the only thing that can save you. So the certainty of divine judgment. Number four. This will be our fourth one. The invincibility of God's purposes. Look at verse 17 and 18. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, Jesus here is quoting a Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. There is a tradition that says when Solomon's temple was being built, you see, there was a rock quarry far off from the temple site so that no sound of hammer would be heard when they were actually putting those stones together to build the temple. So the people in the rock quarry would cut the stones to dimension and then haul them to the temple site and construct the temple building that way. Well, one day, this stone shows up and it doesn't fit anywhere. And they can't figure out where to put it. So they just roll it over the side of the hill down into the Kidron Valley. And then later on, they discover, hey, where's the cornerstone? Well, that had been delivered a long time ago. So they go down into the Kidron Valley, they haul back that cornerstone, and it fits perfectly into place. And it becomes the most important stone of the entire temple. See, the cornerstone was like, how would I say? Let's say this is the corner of the temple. It would be the stone right here. And it's the most important stone because it has to be perfectly flat so that the rest of the temple is perfectly flat. And it's got to have perfectly straight up sides on this side and on this side so that the whole building goes up perpendicular and it's not lopsided this way or that way. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He's the foundation stone upon which all of the church is built. But it says here that the stone which the builders rejected. Now, who are the builders? The religious leaders. The ones he's been speaking to. The ones he says are going to kill him in a few days. The ones who are going to be destroyed. And the kingdom's taken away from them and given it to another people. They're the builders. They're going to reject him. But in spite of their best efforts to get rid of Jesus, that cornerstone is going to become the foundation of this new edifice, this church. Do you see the invincibility of God's sovereign purpose? I don't care what you try to do. You cannot thwart the sovereign purpose of God Almighty. God's purposes will be established in spite of what you do. (laughs) Here they kill Jesus, and in the very act of killing him, that establishes the church. You see? God's purposes are invincible. Nobody can stop him from doing what he set out to do. Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm, I shouldn't say chapter 2. Psalm 2 puts it this way. I love this. The first six verses. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what was happening in Jesus' day. The kings of the earth, the rulers, the religious leaders are taking their stand against Jesus Christ. And how does the one sitting in the heaven respond to this? He who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. (laughs) He thinks it's funny. It's ridiculous to God that they think that they can somehow overthrow his rule. 
he scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You think you can overthrow my purposes? That's funny. In, in fact, you try to overthrow him, and in doing that, I'm going to install him upon Mount Zion. He's going to be the ruler over the whole church. Or if we wanted another passage, we could go to Daniel chapter 4 to see how God spoke uh, to ne King Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to this. It's Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? When God sets about to do something, nobody can move his hand from doing it. My friends, one of the things that God has purposed to do is to save and elect people all over this world. People from every tongue, people, nation, and language. He's already chosen them, and He's going to redeem them by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Spirit's going to regenerate them, and nobody can stop that from happening. That's His invincible purpose. Another thing God has purposed to do is to conform every one of His people into the image of Jesus Christ. That's going to happen. It's invincible. It will happen because God is the King. It will. Even you can't stop it. Even you can't stop that from happening. The Bible says in Ezekiel 36 that He's going to send His Spirit into you and cause you to walk in His statutes and to obey His ordinances. The Spirit is stronger than your flesh. The Spirit will have victory ultimately in your life. He will bring about sanctification. Another sovereign purpose of God is to keep every single one that Jesus saves. To keep them till the end. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise all of them up on the last day. Every single one. Another sovereign purpose is to destroy this evil, wicked world. It's invincible. It's going to happen. Another invincible purpose is to create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's invincible. <laughs> There's nothing that can stop these sovereign purposes of God from taking place. You see, He is the sovereign. That means He is the highest authority. He's not answerable to you. He's not answerable to the angels. He's answerable to nobody. Can you imagine that? Not being answerable to anybody? That's, that's who God is. That's the character of God. He does what He wants. He does whatever He wants. So what are the four truths here? The, the depravity and corruption of man. The long-suffering and forbearance of God to put up with sinful men over and over and over and over. But then also the certainty of divine judgment. God has a long fuse, but He does have a fuse that's going to run out eventually. And the invincibility of His purpose. So you and I can rest knowing that we're in the hands of a loving Father who has all power and all authority to accomplish anything He wants to do. I wouldn't want to be out of His hands, but because I'm in His hands, that's a place of comfort and peace and rest. Amen? And so, for the lost person, seek the Lord while He may be found. Seek the Lord.
while he may be found. Follow him while he's near. Let the wicked man forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Or Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Just like those who took refuge in the ark. How blessed are all who come to Christ and find their all in all in him. If you don't know Christ, flee to him, trust him, bow to him today. And if you know him, take comfort that he's in charge. The things happening down here are not out of his control. He's not wringing his hands in heaven. What shall I do? What shall I do? Things are moving along according to his predestined purpose and sovereign will. And if you're in his hands, you're in a safe place. You can trust him. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this parable that instructs us. We praise you, Lord, that you are sovereign, that you're forbearing. We even praise you, Lord, that you are just because it would be unrighteous of you not to be. But Lord, we long to see our friends and relatives saved from the coming day of judgment. We long for them to come to know you, Lord. We call upon you, Lord, to be merciful. We ask you to open up their eyes and bring them into your kingdom. Lord, give them a sense of alarm so that they would flee from their own self-righteousness to Jesus Christ and be found in him alone, gloriously complete. Would you do that work, O God? If there's anyone here today who's not saved, Lord, would you convert them? Bring them to Jesus. In your holy name, amen.